0: Welcome to The Lit Review, a podcast sparked by a moment of urgency, recognizing mass political education as key for our liberation struggles. Every week, your hosts, Paige May and Monica Trinidad, will chat with people we love and respect about relevant books for the movement. Everything from history to theories around gender to sci-fi and beyond. We know that political study is not accessible for a variety of reasons. The high cost of books, academic jargon, the failures of our underfunded school systems, time barriers, etc. Our hope is that this podcast helps address some of those issues, making critical knowledge more accessible to the masses. Think SparkNotes in podcast form. I'm one of your hosts, Paige May. Thanks for listening. Hey, just making sure you know that this is part three of an extended conversation that we had with Fanny Rushing. So if you missed it, you're gonna to wanna to go back, definitely, and check out parts one and two. She talks all about her friend and mentor, Missella Baker, as well as laying out uh, her theories around colonialism, capitalism, racism, and how all those things come together in Haiti. If you already checked them out, excellent. This is part three. Can you tell us a little about about for folks who don't know who Corinne
1: who Lou was? Um, that's what just the state shares? one of one of the most extraordinary women in US history, a woman who literally changed the history of the United States. Mm-hmm. And yet who knows her name? Well, we hope that's going to be adjusted a, a, um, a little bit. Um, Mrs. Hamer Uh, was a quintessential example of of what SNCC was involved in in Mississippi and elsewhere. She was a born leader, um, a woman of extraordinary intelligence, a woman of um, extraordinary courage, compassion, and also so human so uh mrs hamer was funny she um i I, I don't want to use words like earthy because they seem very stereotypical but um mrs hamer was as down to earth as anybody could ever be uh her ability to analyze ideas. If we could teach that, mm-hmm. you know, but how do you do it? Uh because she could look at a complicated issue and she could slice it up and size it up in ten or fifteen minutes. And this is, you know, without the formal training of logic and, and, and what have you. Uh,
0: And she was was a sharecropper, right? She
1: was a sharecropper. Her family was a sharecropper. She married a man who was a sharecropper. Um, This is such a wonderful book because, um, you know, I could talk forever about what are the principles of SNCC. But in this book, uh, you can see what they are. You can see... Uh, the importance of working with local people, the importance of being able to identify folks who, whether you're there or not, uh, are going to be uh, leaders because you're not doing anything. Uh, You're not making them leaders. These are people who are natural leaders and have been leaders in their communities long before, uh, you arrive. I could read every word in, um, in this book. Um, it, uh, it also provides people with an inside look of what life was in Mississippi on a day-to-day basis. And when are we talking about, we're not talking about slavery, we're not talking about the 1920s, the 1930s, we're talking about the 1960s, when sharecroppers didn't have indoor plumbing, when not only sharecroppers, most people Mm -hmm. in the black community didn't have indoor plumbing, uh, electricity, uh, heat, because it gets cold in uh, Mississippi in uh, the winter. Uh, didn't have heat, and, um, it shows you what life was like, particularly for, for black women, because sometimes the, the narrative is, uh, so heavily masculinized that you do not get a sense that there is anything else. You don't get a sense that this kind of oppression uh, affects women differently. Uh, For example, as Kay Mills says, uh, the, the Townsend, Mrs. Hamer's parents, had 20 children, 20 children. Can you imagine what that does to a woman's health? First of all, if she had 20 children, that means that in addition to that, she had miscarriages, she had stillbirths, so that, you know, every moment of her life was taken up with reproduction that was not being cared for. I mean, mm-hmm. I just... And, of course, more than half of the children don't live. Right. So, in addition to these horrible pregnancies with no medical care... uh. Prenatal care that we now know makes all the difference uh, in terms of uh, viability of children. The pain of a mother uh, continually losing what she's given birth to. Uh, the complications that all these pregnancies uh, provide a woman with, and there, you know, there's no way to get help for this. Uh, And the kind of poverty that um, the Hamer family experienced. Um, uh, Kate Mills uh, says, uh, the large Townsend family picked tremendous amounts, 55 to 60 bales of cotton, 500 to 600 pounds to the bale. But at the end of each year, When the accounts were total, sharecroppers in Mississippi often owed the landowners money rather than earning anything. This isn't slavery that we're talking about. We're talking about the 20th century. Right. Um, And um, (laughs) she, uh, this is particularly poignant in terms of just how hard these people were working, you know, Uh, these are not shiftless folks standing around waiting for a welfare check, as we often hear. Um, She says, one year, Jim Townsend did manage to make some money. He said, you know, we ought to buy some mules and wagons because if we rent some land, I can make a better living for my children. Mrs. Tamer said, people who work the land viewed uh, renting as better than sharecropping because the black farmer could keep more of his crop for himself. But blacks renting also posed a threat to whites who wanted to preserve their workforce. They didn't have machines like they have now, Mrs. Hamer recalled decades later. They had mules. So my father bought three precious mules. I'll never forget their names because we love them, because they was ours. He bought three mules, Ella, Bird, and Henry. Ella was a white mule, and Bird was kind of tan, and Henry was jet black, but they were beautiful to us. He also bought two cows, one of which was named Della. He bought a wagon, some plow tools, and cultivators. We were doing pretty well. He even started to fix the house up real nice, and we had bought a car. One night, while the Townsend were away from home, this white man went to our lot and went to the trough where the mules had to eat and stirred up a gallon of Paris green poison into the mule's food. It killed everything we had. When we got there, one mule was already dead. The other two mules and the cow had their stomachs all swelled up. It was too late to save them. That poisoning knocked us right back down flat. We never did get back up again. That white man did it just because we were getting somewhere. White people never like to see Negroes get a little success. Just extraordinary. Extraordinary poverty, Uh, and um, she talks about uh, just how intense this poverty was. They didn't have shoes. Uh, Her mother would take sacks and uh, try and wrap their feet, but their feet would still crack in the cold of Mississippi. She said, um, you you, you have to wonder, Uh, the child grew up amid poverty and also violence. Black people took what they were handed at settling time or in the courts or in the streets of the small towns, whether they liked it or not. In the decade before Fannie Lou was born, white Mississippians lynched an estimated 83 black men. Two white men and one black woman. The year Fannie Lou Townsend reached her third birthday, 13 lynchings took place in Mississippi. Only Georgia, with 14, had more. Again, this is not slavery that we're talking about. This is 1920, 1930. Um, She talks about the killing of Emmett Till and the way uh, that... um, resonated through the black community, just another lesson to people, that even a child, even a child had to be put in their place, uh, in order to preserve this horrible system. And yet, um, K Mills writes, um, after Mrs. Hamer left, uh, school, she worked long days with her family. At night, they would roast peanuts. They made up their own entertainment. Fannie Lou's father would tell jokes, or she would sing. The family slept on cotton sacks filled with dry grass or corn shucks. Her father died in 1939. She watched as her mother went blind from an accident. My mother was clearing up a new ground, trying to help feed us for $1.25 a day. She was using an axe just like a man, and something flew up and hit her in the eye. (coughs) Excuse me. Eventually she lost her sight because she couldn't go to a proper specialist. And two things strike me about this. Extraordinary poverty, but yet such closeness, such love, and the ability to uh, generate a warm and caring family life by just roasting some peanuts and telling stories and singing. Um, another thing that strikes me particularly about Mrs. Hamer's early growing up, uh, Mrs. Hamer lived on the Marlowe Plantation outside Ruleville in a small home. Uh, Mrs. Hamer considered the house pretty decent. It had running water, although no hot water, and a bathtub. There was an indoor toilet, but it didn't work. When we asked the man to fix it, he said we didn't need it, so we had to use the outside toilet. That didn't bother me too much, she said, till one day when I was cleaning the boss's house, I had cleaned one bathroom and was working on another, when his daughter came up to me and said, you don't have to clean this one good, Fannie Lou, it's just old honeys. Old Honey was the dog. I just couldn't get over that dog having a bathroom when the owner wouldn't even fix a toilet for us. But then Negroes in Mississippi are treated worse than dogs. As Kay Mills says, from the humblest of beginnings, Mrs. Hamer would go on to challenge the President of the United States, the National Democratic Party, members of Congress, and the American people about fulfilling the promises of democracy. She recognized the shortcomings in the nation's electoral and educational systems. She opposed the war in Vietnam from the beginning, and she was thrilled by seeing Africans govern themselves. She organized programs to feed poor people and tend to their ills, house them, close them, train them for jobs. She ran for office. She recognized the need for women of all races to work together for political and social goals. She encouraged young people to set and achieve their own goals. Um, And uh, the book goes over... Uh, the, her uh, coming of age politically when she makes uh, the important step of um, going down to register to vote. And of course, when she goes down to register to vote, as uh, was the case in those days, before she got back home, uh, the plantation owner had been called uh, to tell uh, tell him that, did you know um, that uh, Fannie Lou Hamer came down to register to vote? And so, of course, uh, he goes uh, to... Um, to tell Pat, her husband, that uh, she um, she had uh, better uh, take her name off the rose. and uh, it says her husband, Pat Hamer, remembered the day well. Uh, that day at twelve o'clock. Me and my little girls, Mrs. Papp, we went to the house for lunch. Okay, here come Mr. Marlowe across there. He asked me where was Fanny. The conversation went on. I don't know. she gone to town there somewhere. No, she ain't gone to town. she gone down to Indianola to Reddish. Reddish being Mississippi vernacular for registering. And I ain't going to have that. "'What's that going to do?' Mr. Hamer remembered, asking. "'Oh, it's going to happen. "'It ain't going to happen to do nothing but stir up a lot of stuff. "'It's going to happen, but we ain't ready for it now.' Mr. Hamer thought about what his boss had said. "'I thought, hell, there must be something to it, "'or why would he want to raise hell about it? "'I thought about it all that evening. "'Well, they made it home late that evening.' and he had told me to tell her when she come to go back down there and get her name off that book if she wanted to stay out here, meaning on the place. When Mrs. Hamer returned, her husband was putting the cotton trailers away, so the Hamer's daughters, Dorothy and Virgie, told her what the boss said. It was night when I got to the house. Mr. Hamer... And Mr. Hamer, and so I asked her, uh, Did the children tell you what Mr. D, meaning Mr. Marlowe, said? I said, Well, what are you going to do? She said, I didn't go down there to register for Mr. Marlowe. I went down to register for myself. And her husband said, Okay. A few minutes after I got through talking to her, here he comes he wanted to know. Ask me, did I tell her? Mr. Hamer replied, I sure did. What's she say? She in there. She'll tell you herself. He called his wife to the door. The boss said, Fanny, you've been down there to Indianola to register today, didn't you? Yes, sir, Mr. Marlowe. I sure did. Well, if you want to stay here, and everything go like it always is, you better go down there and get your name off that book. Mr. D., I didn't go down there to register for you, Mrs. Hamer repeated. (laughs) I went down to register for myself. It was a line she would come to repeat again and again around the country. It was a line that took unshakable courage to speak black woman to White Boss in Sunflower, Mississippi. The next day, of course, uh, he repented and told her that she could come back and everything would be the same, just as it had always been. She said, that's what I'm trying to change, Mr. Merlot. I don't want things to be just like they always been.
0: And you knew her, right? Oh, yes. mm-hmm.
1: Yes. Yeah, as he said, yeah. <laughs> such an unbelievably exciting time. Yeah. Where on earth do you meet somebody like Fanny Hamer, A woman with incredible courage, no hatred, um, and certainly she had every reason to hate. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only that, uh, as he said, she was so funny. I... <laughs> Uh, the way she could just slice something down. And, and, uh, and it, you know, by the time I met Mrs. Hamer, she had already run for Congress. I mean, she had already started to uh, gain notoriety for who she was. Do you think she had? In- no, no. It was just, honey, what you doing there? You know, <laughs> uh, you want to help me with these peas? Just extraordinary, just extraordinary.
0: What do you? What did you? Um, well, I guess what did you learn from her? Um, and what? What do you understand to be her her legacy? I mean, you say she she single-handedly changed mm-hmm. the country. And what were some of those ways?
1: Well, she not only ran against Jamie Whitten for Congress, uh, she was one of the principal organizers for the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. And, of course, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party is a turning point in uh, the history of the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, Mrs. Hamer, uh, along with the Mississippi delegation, went to Atlantic City, to the Democratic National Convention in 1964, it was a convention at which Lyndon Johnson was going to be anointed as uh, president in his own right. He didn't, uh, in his words, he didn't want no five, six, seven, eight, or any of that shit going on uh, in, in Atlantic City. Uh, you know, Lyndon Johnson uh, was about as explicit as a white Southerner could be. Uh, we're not going to have any of this nonsense. You know, want these people to go back to uh, Mississippi. How, the nerve of them, you know, showing up here, talking about not seating the, Miss- the regular Mississippi delegation. That could cost me the election. If the Southern... Voters bolt the party the way they did in 1948 uh, and set up an independent party. I will not be the next president of the United States. Finally, he decided that, well, you know, they definitely could not be seated. But what he would do is they could choose two people that could come into the convention and sit on the floor, but they couldn't have a vote or voice. And that was his concession. That was a compromise. And uh, he sent all kinds of emissaries to um, the MFDP to choose two people and bring them into the convention. Well, the question was, should they accept the compromise? Well, everybody. Johnson sent Hubert Humphrey, who was to be vice president, and Humphrey essentially said, you know, if you all force this challenge, uh, Johnson will not be elected, uh, he won't be the nominee, I won't be vice president, you know, you really must, in the long range, it's going to be better for you to accept this challenge. And there's a very telling place in uh, the book where um, they're at the convention, and all of these people, uh, Hubert Humphrey, Walter, Ruth, everybody is saying to them, accept this compromise. Accept this compromise. And um, Mrs. Hamer, you know, should we accept the compromise? Should we not? Well, even King came to them and said, oh, you know, you've got to take this compromise because of X, Y, and Z. Mrs. Hamer wasn't convinced, and uh, she said to Bob Moses, They keep saying we should accept this compromise. What should I do? And Bob Moses said, You're grown. You make your own decision. Well, you know, this is a perfect example of what he had learned from Miss Baker. Don't you know, tell people what to do, because the objective is for people to realize their own ability to carry out their own wishes, their own goals. Ultimately, her decision was no—not going to accept the compromise. So they didn't win the challenge. But after the 1964 convention, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, anybody that runs a political party in this country had to change their rules. Uh, So in 68, if you're in California, and 70% of the population is Mexican, you better show up with a delegation that is representative of that. Otherwise, you're not going to be seated. If half your constituents are women, you better show up with a delegation that's got half women. This is a change in the very foundation of electoral politics in this country. That's what Mrs. Hamer and the NFDP brought about. And again, this is change from within. These are black people determining what it is that they see as important, fighting for it, And you may not win the battle, but you sure advance the war.
0: Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Lit Review, a podcast where we interview people we love and respect about books for the movement. We are your co-hosts, Monica Trinidad and Paige May two Chicago-based organizers. Special shout-out to The Lit Review's very own sponsor, the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership out of Kalamazoo College. Keep your eyes and ears open for another episode next Monday, same time, same place. Want to hear about a specific book? Email us at thelitreviewchicago at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. And if you like this episode, give it a shout-out on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is at litreviewshy. Keep reading!